Welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. Today I am joined by Chip Conley. Chip is a New York Times bestselling author and a hospitality maverick. He helped Airbnb's founders turn their fast-growing tech startup into a global phenomenon. And we're going to talk about how that experience today inspired him to create the modern Elder Academy, which supports students to navigate midlife. I think this is such an important curriculum to navigate midlife with a renewed sense of purpose and possibility. So in this conversation, we'll talk about how Chip was inspired by his experiences of intergenerational mentoring as a modern elder at Airbnb and the journey that took him on. I really appreciated the story, the picture that Chip was able to paint here of this journey through life and the stages of life that we can move through. So we'll talk about four kinds of transition that we can go through. We'll talk about reasons to love midlife. We'll talk about wholeness and purpose. And Chip has a really nice perspective on purpose. In general, we're going to talk about the evolution of the self and what Chip calls the collective chrysalis. I found myself feeling more compassion as someone who's in midlife (laughs) And perhaps in that phase of the spinning plate syndrome that Chip names, I found myself feeling much more compassion for myself. I just think there's some really fascinating distinctions and points being made in this conversation. I'd just like to say that Coaches Rising is a provider of online coach trainings. We offer trainings on somatics and coaching, on leadership coaching, on the neuroscience of change and the power of presence in coaching. If you want to find out more about the kinds of offerings we have, you can head to coachesrising.com. That's where you can also join our ever-growing community of transformational coaches. You'll find a sign-up box on that homepage and you can sign up and stay in the loop about all things that we create. That being said, let's dive in. Here is the podcast with Chip Conley. All right, Chip, I'm uh, really delighted to be with you. How are you, first of all? Well, I am, it's early in the morning here in San Francisco, <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm well. I actually, uh, we, I just am about three weeks after getting my prostate taken out. <laughs> it's a gr- great way to start, right? So I had, a, I had a radical prostatectomy, so I'm in recovery, but I'm actually getting better every day. But it helped me to see like, wow, what's it going to feel like uh, 20 or 30 years from now when I'm frail? Uh, because the first few days afterwards, you're really, you are very frail. So um, overall, I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you're in recovery. You're getting yeah. better. Thank you. And actually, I think probably we'll tap into that, that theme in our conversation today. We're going to talk about your work. and We're going to talk about the modern elder academy and this transition in midlife. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, um, yeah, our mortality is a, a part of that, I think. So but yeah. I think a, a good place to start maybe is just, could you just tell us a little bit about who you are? Like maybe your, maybe your life story in two minutes. Yeah. So I, I started at age 26, a couple of years out of Stanford Business School. I started a the one of the, the U.S.'s first boutique hotel companies and called it Joie de Vivre, um, Joy of Life. And uh Started it in San Francisco and over the next 24 years was the CEO and, and ran that company to become the second largest in, in the US uh, with 52 boutique hotels around California. And I loved it till I hated it. I had a flatline experience at age 47. I was going through a very difficult time. It was an allergic reaction to an antibiotic. It was like the hotelier's wake up call. 
Um, and I said, I don't want to do this anymore, but I didn't have any tools for how I could transition in midlife into something else. I did have, my best friend was a, a coach, uh, Vanda Marlowe, and she helped me through that time. And at age 50, all of a sudden I'd sold my business, my boutique hotel company at the bottom of the great recession. And I was ready for something new, but I had no idea what that was. Um, there's a great quote from Robert De Niro in The Intern. He says, musicians don't retire. They quit when there's no more music left inside of them. So I knew I had music inside of me. I just didn't know who to share it with. And that was when I got a call from Brian Chesky, uh, the co-founder and CEO of Airbnb. Nobody had ever had heard of Airbnb 11 years ago. Most people hadn't. And it was this tiny little tech startup in San Francisco where I was that wanted to be helping to democratize hospitality. So I spent seven and a half years with them, four years full-time uh, as the in-house mentor to the, the CEOs. I'm sorry, the CEOs, the founders, the three founders, and uh, the head of global hospitality and strategy, and then three and a half years as a as um, a strategic advisor. During that time, I uh, they called me the modern elder. So I didn't like that at first. <laughs> and, I, and they said that, Chip, a modern elder is someone who's as curious as they are wise. Like, oh, I like that. Curiosity and wisdom, the perfect alchemy is what I'm looking for. And that ultimately led me to writing a book called, uh, my fifth book, which is called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. And while I was writing that book in Mexico at a beachfront home I have in a place called Baja, California, um, I had a Baja aha, an epiphany. Why do we have no midlife wisdom schools? Why don't we create a, why couldn't I create a place that was dedicated to helping people to reimagine and repurpose themselves in midlife and beyond? And that's how MEA, uh, the Modern Elder Academy, came to be. And um, yeah, so that's that's my story. Mm, nice. Well, there's a lot of questions I could ask you from what you just shared, but maybe let's talk about midlife. You know, you went through this midlife transition, and we might maybe pull out more of the events that took place there that, sh- that sort of shaped the trajectory of your life. But uh, I, I also feel this midlife transition is so important you know we in the little check-in spoke about my age i'm 44 now and you know um it's since getting over the age of 40 uh suddenly i find myself thinking about my life you know in a different way uh wow i didn't think i'd get to 40 so quickly and so (laughs) how how fast is it how long have i got left you know yeah um and then just just these certain events that kind of can also come along and disrupt life in, in quite large ways that can break my heart open, you know, and, yeah. and have me start to question in a deeper way. And what, what is it? What, what do you, how do you see midlife really? What do you, what do you sure. see as the transition that's taking place there? And then we can talk about the, you know, the, the curriculum of midlife perhaps, but yeah. What it, yeah. Well, there's, you know, it's interesting. Um, there are three life stages that became, I'll call it popularized in the 20th century or discovered. First one was adolescence. The word didn't exist till 1904. Up until 1904, once you hit puberty, you were an adult. And then the word adolescence got coined in uh, in a book. And and then adolescence and your your teen years got a lot of love and care um, and attention and still does. The second life stage that got uh, um, uh, popularized in the 20th century was retirement. Um, The concept of retirement was a European concept from the uh, from Germany from the late 
20, late 19th century. But in the 20th century, it became very popularized. And in the United States, we had something called Social Security and there was pensions. And, and the idea that you should be able to retire at 60 or 65 became sort of a mainstream idea. The third life stage that didn't get anything like the love and attention that the adolescence and retirement got was midlife. And that's partly because in the year 1900, longevity in, in, in the Western world was around 47 years old. And it, by the year 2000, it was 77. We added, Joel, we added three decades of longevity in one century. So what did that mean? It meant that there's this new life stage, um, midlife. But all midlife got was a bad brand. Because when I say the word midlife, what's the word you attach to it naturally, Joel? Well, right after crisis. Is yes, yeah. midlife crisis. Um, I was lucky enough a couple of months ago to be asked to give a TED Talk at the big TED conference in Vancouver on the midlife chrysalis. Because I'm, I'm starting to see that having had 3,500 midlife alumni go through our program in Baja and soon to be in Santa Fe, New Mexico, that midlife is less of a crisis and it's more of a chrysalis. And if you think about the caterpillar to butterfly journey, you've got the caterpillar who's frankly in the two weeks before it spins its chrysalis, it is eating much more than it was prior because it's bulking up. It knows it's about to go into seclusion. And so, you know, in, 20, in our 20s and our 30s and our early 40s, we are just, you know, striving, striving, striving. And then, you know, around midlife for the, the butterfly, it goes, it spins the chrysalis. And that chrysalis is dark and gooey and solitary uh, and liminal. To, you know, to word, use a word I love to use, liminal, to be in between two things. Um, but it's also where the transformation happens. And on the other side of that, of that chrysalis is this beautiful winged creature that comes out and, and has to get its wings sort of settled at first. It's a beginner again as a, as a butterfly because it's never flown before. But I, I think that's a pretty interesting metaphor for life, our midlife, because what if midlife is this era when we are going through some kind of transformation with on the other side of it, the ability to pollinate our wisdom in the world um, as we get a little bit older? There are a few social science facts that I just want to throw out there. Number one is there's the U-curve of happiness. Um, have, you, have you heard of that, Joel, before? Uh, no. Okay. So let me, let me give you a little background on this. So the U-curve of happiness has been studied across, I think, about 50 countries now. And it's been pretty conclusive across almost all cultures. What, it, what they've shown is that from about age 20 to 25, you start a decline in life satisfaction that bottoms out, I hate to tell you this at age 44, between 45 and 50, <laughs> your <laughs> mileage may vary. Um, the fact is, it these are all averages. So it, it, I would guess that you are on an accelerated path and your, yours might, might be earlier, but who knows, I'll, I'll talk about that. Around 45 to 50, people's life satisfaction bottoms out. And then here's the part that's interesting, Joel, is that with each decade after hitting 50, on average, people's life satisfaction goes up. So 50s happier than 40s, 60s happier than 50s, 70s happier than 60s, and women in their 80s happier than 70s. Wow. So what the heck's going on? What the heck's going on? Yeah. Well, there are a few things going on. Um, and I have a book coming out that I, I've, I've written that's it's not out yet, but you, know, you can pre-order it called Learning to Love Midlife that goes into this in a lot more detail. Uh, the, the subtitle says it all. It's the 12 reasons why life gets better with age. I... I the things that are happening that lead to that sort of life dissatisfaction 
include the following. There's a, an emotional equation I'll, I'll start with, which is disappointment equals expectations minus reality. And it's often around someone's mid-40s that they start to realize that they had hopes and dreams that had turned into expectations. And it's around your mid-40s that you start to see the future more easily and realize, I'm not going to hike Mount Everest, or I don't have a million pounds in the bank, or um, I have way too many pounds around my waist, <laughs> um, or I, um, okay, I was using British example because you're British, but let's do, let's do euros let's instead, since you're in Amsterdam. I, I don't have a thousand euros in the bank. I'm a million euros in the bank. I'm not going to be the CEO of a huge company. And you start to realize, oh, my, my kids are, are not perfect. And I didn't marry my soulmate. And there's a bunch of things that are going on. And that leads some people to the conclusion that they've done their life wrong. Because that's one thing that's going on. A second thing that's going on is often around that age, you have what uh, Bruce Feiler who's one of our faculty members at MEA, says a life quake. You have a series of life quakes. You have a lot of, there's a lot of transitions that are happening in midlife. Um, the kinds of transitions include sandwich generation, taking care of parents later in life while you still have kids at home or empty nest. Your kids are now leaving home and you know that that's a big transition. For women, menopause. For men, something called andropause. Um, you start to see mortality. Uh, not just because of your parents, but because of friends, maybe your own health diagnoses, um, divorce, changing careers, changing where you live, having some kind of newfound spirituality starting to bubble up inside of you and you have no words for it. So there's a lot going on during this era. Um, and yet there's almost nothing in the way of schools or tools or rituals or rites of passage. We do not have a life begins at 50 ritual when someone turns 50 and said, ah, Guess what? It gets better from here. Uh, so part of the reason we created MEA, the Modern Elder Academy, was to help people understand there's a lot going on during this era, and uh, and there are better times ahead. Uh, as I said, there are 12 reasons why life gets better with age in my book, Learning to Live Midlife. And um, we want people to know that some of what they're going through is normal. Um, it's easy to sort of get... And let's say one last thing is that the spinning plates phenomena, it is around our mid forties that we realize we have, like we've spent our life, our adult life accumulating, accumulating knowledge, accumulating friends, accumulating responsibilities and obligations, accumulating stuff, uh, people you've dated, people you've married, kids. And there's a point at which you just say like, oh my God, this is too much. If, if, if midlife now, according to some sociologists, lasts from 35 to 75. <laughs> and you are carrying all of this baggage in midlife, then that is a marathon that is almost impossible to run. So the first half of our life is about accumulating. And the second half of our life is about editing. And at MEA, we, what we do is we have something called the great midlife edit. And it's something that happens in the first 24 hours of a workshop. And um, it's a ritual with the 20 to 24 people in, in the workshop in which um, you start to let go of mindsets, archetypes, ways of thinking and being, habits, um, responsibilities that you're ready to let go of. And, and then you start to actually imagine what, you, what will you replace that with. 
But we need that. We need that kind of ritual in midlife to say, these are the things that no longer serve me. Yeah. And what once you have some space in your life, you can start to see what emerges uh, to put it in its place. So and this sounds very, I sounds very coaching like, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I think we'll probably talk about that where where would better knowledge of this transition actually serve coaches who are, for example, working with executive clients. Yeah. These people are talking about some of these things. And, you know, if they actually understood this transition a bit more, they could perhaps support that client in a yeah. better way. But uh, let me do one, yeah, one, one quick thought, Joel, and then go, let's go back to you. But yeah. about 15 to 20% of the people of the people who come to MEA of 3,500 have been coaches. And um, so coaches come uh, quite often and they come partly for personal reasons because they're going through whatever they're going through and partly for professional reasons to just learn some of these tools to apply to their clients. So, yeah. Yeah. Nice. It, it does make sense. Um, and I want to talk about this midlife edit uh, yeah. and some of the things you named a bit more first, but I just want to come back to uh, what you described, you know, this uh, happiness curve and what, why do you think, well, you've, you've named a lot of reasons why you think people are most unhappy uh, mm-hmm. in that period of, you know, the spinning plate syndrome, all these yeah. um, pressures perhaps of life, the, mm-hmm. you know, the disapp- disappointment of expectations that are unfulfilled. Um, two questions I have, so it's bad interviewing, but I'll just let you pick them both. <laughs> like one is maybe, maybe there are some people that um, – navigate this transition more easily or are, you know, better able to uh, transition or something, something like that, you know, like other people, or, or maybe that's not a good thing. Maybe actually the more you actually allow the, the weight of all these pressures in, the more that can actually allow you, you to face the need for something else to arise. So that's one thing. And what, why is it that people get happier? Yeah. Cause like, you know, Wow, that's such good news. And I would have thought people would get less happy there as their vitality decreases, perhaps. You know? It's a very interesting thing. So, so let's go with the first question, yeah. which was, again, back, your question was. It was, a, it was a miss. Yeah. In a way, like, is it. Are there people that don't? Yeah, maybe that's right. not the right yeah. question, but yeah. I, I, yeah. You, your question was really like. It, so I think. How I think your question really relates to: Is there a way to avert that the bottom of the pyramid, the bottom of the U curve? Yeah, uh, accelerate it, whatever it is. I I can say because these are all averages. It, it, let's be clear that there's no there's no one age that everybody has at the bottom. Uh, technically speaking, forty seven point two is the exact low point, which is about the time I had my flatline experience fifteen years ago. Um, so I would just say that the people I've seen who are able to get through the midlife, um, that midlife down uh, period had two or three different qualities. Number one is they tended to earlier in their life throw away the success script that they had actually been issued, or they asked deeper and bigger questions such that they didn't wake up at age 47 and say, what the hell am I doing? Because they were on the treadmill of success, but it, it wasn't a treadmill that they had chosen for themselves. But it had been, they had sort of often because of parents, sometimes because of community and 
society uh, and the culture that they're in, they had taken a path that felt ill-fitting for who they are and what their natural talents are. So, you know, you're probably familiar with the Ikigai um, principle in J Japanese, which is like finding the thing that you love to do, that you do well, that you can get rewarded for, that um, the, the world or society needs. And right there in the, the center of that is a person's Ikigai, if they could find that. You know, that's one of the things we help people with um, at MEA. And because, you know, the reality is that uh, if, you, if you're doing something for purely for the money or you're doing it because so you think there's a societal need, but it's not something you really care about very much about uh, or are very good at, then that's a challenge um, and it will always be one. So, so one of the things that I think defines people who get through this, this low point e uh, faster or easier is they are able to get rid of the success script um, more easily. Number two is definitely editing. People learn how to, to edit. And that's a hard thing because for many of us, it's around our mid forties that we're saying, I feel so many obligations. I have committed to so much. And some of them are children. And this is a hard one because you can't just say, okay, well, I'm going to just leave my children. No, you can't. I mean, that's not, that's the great midlife edit does not include typically um, saying goodbye to your children. So yeah. So some of this is like, you know, you're, you are in a position, you know, children, may not create happiness, but they definitely create meaning. And that's social science research. It's like, it's not about short-term happiness. It's about long-term meaning when it comes with, to kids. But if you have everything in your life focused on long-term meaning and very little of it on short-term happiness, that's a problem. So there's a guy named uh, Dr. Dacker Keltner. He's on our, our faculty. He's uh, at UC Berkeley, but he teaches at MEA as well. He has a book that came out in January called Awe, A-W-E. And I, I think helping people in midlife to feel the wonder of the world, not just the weight of the world, is a really essential piece of that. And so in Dacker's book, he really focuses on the eight pathways to everyday awe. And of course, everybody knows that nature is one of those, but actually nature's third place on the path to awe in, in terms of how prevalent it is across cultures, um, which was really surprising to him and to, to me. But number one um, on the list was moral beauty. How do we seek out moral beauty in our lives? And how do we embody it ourselves through kindness and courage? And um, the second, number two on this was collective effervescence. The idea of being in an experience where your sense of ego separation dissolves and what comes in its place is a sense of communal joy. And I I was a founding board member of Burning Man. <laughs> uh, and Burning Man is definitely about collective effervescence um, and right. a certain amount of moral beauty. But you don't have to go to Burning Man to actually feel that sense of wonder uh, or awe. You can, you can have it in a conversation with a friend or just playing with your, your niece or your nephew or your, or your own child or um, finding that flow experience, whether it's gardening or surfing or writing that helps you to feel that sense of elevation um, because what's so prevalent around you know, our mid forties is the habitual grind that we have created for ourselves. And um, part of what we have to do is to find those opportunities to break out of that. I highly recommend people consider doing a Sabbath, like a, you know, not, not necessarily religiously, but you know, a digital Sabbath. So it's at least one day of your weekend. If you have, 
two days off on a weekend that you you go offline and you have an out of office message. And it doesn't mean you don't work. You can work, but it does mean that you don't expect and no one expects you to be able to be responsive on a weekend. Um, I'm sounding very European, aren't I, Joel? Um, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, and take the whole damn month of August off. Um, exactly. Uh, so, but but to be able to create spaciousness in your life so that wonder can creep in and you can seek out awe is is pretty essential because otherwise you will feel the weight of the world, not the wonder of the world. Yeah. Just um, that number one on that list of things that create awe, could could you name that again? Moral? Moral beauty. And it's, it's based upon the idea of both observing in yourself, but especially observing in other people some of the qualities of humanity that are most um, inspiring. And so courage and kindness are the two that uh, Dacker calls out most, but it's, it's, so how do you, how do you find that? Well, first of all, you embody that, you know, we mirror it. You might find it in volunteering. How do you find some time to volunteer for a cause that you really care about? And in so doing, you might actually get exposed to some moral beauty. Um, but yeah, if you're especially if you're like a litigation attorney, the the, the more you need this, the, uh, is sort of a function of what you do in your day job. So if you don't have a lot of moral beauty in your day job, it's all the more important that you figure out how to how to infuse it in uh, the rest of your life. You know, I'm str- I'm struck here by the relationality of those first three that you name. You know, it's mm. a lot about being in relationship with the world and others in a particular kind of way, and perhaps. You know, that's something we've, you know, we've had a kind of overemphasis on the individual. Yeah. We've become locked behind our screens. You mentioned this digital detox and it makes me wonder also about the collective midlife transition we might be in right now. I don't know if that's a good way to frame it, but, you know, yeah. like uh, the shit is up in the world and yeah. a lot of the deep beliefs around what it meant to be successful that we've carried with us from modernity, you know, are up for grabs right now. We're questioning those. And so it feels like, yeah, there's a, that could be emphasizing even more the necessity necessity for this work. One of the things that's interesting is that, um, so uh, there's a guy named William Bridges uh, who wrote a book called Transitions long ago. And he said something to the effect of like, um, there's a difference between change and transition. A change is something that is situational and circumstantial. It's on the landscape. A transition is something that's internal. It's psychological and spiritual. And a lot of times we make changes in our life. We change our spouse, we change our boss. And then two years later, we're complaining about the new spouse or the new boss because we didn't do the internal work. Um, And I think a lot of that internal work happens sometimes when it's thrust upon us with uh, circumstances beyond our control. Often those are individual circumstances. But what we've seen in the last few years is collective circumstances. Um, the pandemic was a collective transition that forced us to actually do some internal work um, as individuals and hopefully as a society. I'm not sure as a society we have done, the, especially in the United States, whether we've really done the internal work. It doesn't feel like it. So I guess one of the things to look at, and this is, again, back to Life Life is in the Transitions, which is Bruce Feiler's book, uh, one of his books um, that we talk about at MEA, is there's three kinds of, there's four kinds of transitions. There's individual, and then there's collective. 
and then there's voluntary, and then there's involuntary. And trying to understand which of those four boxes you fit in is helpful because it may influence your the anatomy of a transition, the three stages of any transition. And those three stages are the ending of something. Um, and, and, and when you're ending something, you do, you do need to ritualize it. The messy middle, uh, and that's when, frankly, you're feeling quite liminal and you are often feeling a little bit lost. And you, that's when you need to find the through line. This is the time when a coach is the most valuable to a client because it's often when people lose their sense of self-confidence because they're in that messy middle and they feel the liminality, the awkwardness of their liminality. And then the, the third stage of the transition is the beginning of something new. And the beginning of something new is taking those first two stages and applying it in a new way, in a hero's journey kind of new way with a new pair of glasses in how you are living in the world. Right. And um, so I am a big believer in helping people when they're when they are either thinking about a transition or in the midst of one or struggling with one to try to actually break it down into which of the three stages are you in? Are you are you that caterpillar who went into the messy middle cocoon chrysalis and you're trying to go back to being caterpillar again? Um, because that's often where we go when we're getting into the liminal stage. We go back to what's safe um, and what would give you more safety in the messy middle. Um, so, we, you know, this is, again, I'm, this is all of our, we have a, we have a, if you go to the MEA website, the modernelderacademy.com website, you'll see a, a paper there called the anatomy of the transition that goes into quite a bit of depth on this. Because I imagine a lot of people might try and rush through that liminal phase as well. Yeah, you know, yeah. to get to the next, to the, get to the other side. And there's actually value in being able to be in that space, inhabit it properly. Yeah, there definitely is. And sometimes you don't want to wallow in it. So I, uh, Bruce Feiler in his research with 2000 people found that, you know, the average transition takes about four years, which is a long time. Uh, could it, if you could it get it down to two years and experience some of the, the challenges of it, but also break through it faster, would that be good? Generally speaking, the answer is yes. What was yeah. your second question you asked? Yeah, let's. Uh, I, we'll come back to the one about the wider people uh, who get older. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, experience more happiness. Yeah, what, yeah. what contributes to that? So in my, in my new book that comes out in January, pre-order it soon, guys. Um, it's called Learning to Love Midlife. The subtitle is 12 Reasons Why Life Gets Better with Age. Um, I'll give you three or four reasons of those 12. Uh, number one is for some of us, we start to realize that we are not just our body. It's like the body is the rental vehicle for life. It's like, you know, it's the, you know, the bodies are Hertz or Avis or, you know, or, or, you know, thrifty rental car. We need to take care of it. The body's important. But one of the challenges also around our mid forties is we start to see that, that our body is deteriorating in ways that we don't like. Now, there's lots of great ways for us to improve our body such that it doesn't have to deteriorate. And yet, as we get older, it takes more time and energy to maintain the body. So for some people, it's around age 50 that they don't let their body go, but they realize that they are their, not just their body. That's not the playing field of life that they have to play on anymore. There's their emotional intelligence. And, that, and their heart and emotional intelligence, IQ does not grow with age, but on average, EQ does grow with age. Um, 
Emotional moderation grows with age. Spiritual curiosity grows with age. Wisdom grows with age. I define wisdom. So since, since MEA is a, a, a midlife wisdom school, the first in the, in the world, <clears throat> how do we define wisdom? Um, we define wisdom at MEA as metabolized experience. So your life lessons, which leads to distilled compassion. What, let me unpack that for a moment, because this is one of the things that actually makes people feel better as they get older. It, and let's, let me start by saying that just because you're older doesn't mean you're wiser. You can be a 30, wise 30-year-old 30 and a completely idiot 70-year-old. But so much of it comes back to how have you metabolized your experience? Um, so I, I, I want, let me start by you know, unpacking the definition and then give a practice that we recommend. So the definition is like, okay, metabolized experience is pretty obvious. Life lessons, like understanding your life lessons and seeing how they serve you in the future. But wisdom is a social good. If you're just, if you're just about understanding your life lessons, you could be shrewd or smart or savvy, but those are not social goods. Wisdom, back to Greek times, has been a social good, which means that you are sharing it. Wisdom is not taught, it's shared. And so the idea of sharing your wisdom with others in a way that it feels compassionate and it feels customized. I, you know, I could use the word customized compassion as opposed to distilled compassion. Um, but I, but in either case, when someone feels that they have been the beneficiary or the recipient of wisdom from someone else that feels so personalized and customized to them, that's how I define the distilled compassion. So I, here's a practice. The practice is, I started doing this at age 28 when I was an idiot CEO of a boutique hotel company. I, had, I was clueless and my company was not doing well. And I limped into the weekend and I just said, okay, what the hell am I going to do? Um, and I took down a journal that I'd never written in off the wall that somebody had given me. And I wrote on the cover of it, my wisdom book. And starting from that weekend for 34 years now, I sit down on the weekend and I make a list. It takes 20 to 30 minutes. It's not a big commitment. I make a list of three, four, eight bullet points of what I learned that week. And often the things I learned are from lessons that were not easy. They were sometimes painful because our painful lessons are the raw material for our future wisdom. And so what I would do is make a series of notes to myself of what I'd learned and how it would serve me. And I'd move on. Now, I've been doing that for a long time. And I got to say, I, I know it's accelerated my wisdom, but I have also been doing that with my teams for a long time. So this week, actually tomorrow, our team at MEA, and I did this at Airbnb when I was you know, there for four years full-time. Um, and then I did it at Joie de Vie for 24 years. Once a quarter, we sit down. So tomorrow we'll sit down with our leadership team at MEA and look at the quarter. And we'll ask each of our team members to say, what was your biggest lesson in the quarter? I don't expect people to do the weekly <clears throat> wisdom book unless they want to. But I do expect people to do a quarterly quarterly review of their biggest lesson of the quarter. It's going to be a great thing for a coach to do with a client. What was your biggest lesson of the quarter and how is it going to serve you moving forward? Um, and then we as a team will say, what was our biggest lesson as a team in the quarter and how will it serve us moving on? 
helping people, a great coach, in my opinion, is someone who helps a client make sense of their experiences and may and create wisdom out of that raw material. So um, there's a there's a book called The Myth of Experience, and in that book they talk about uh, an experience coach. They say it's a new kind of a new kind of coach out there. It's not a new kind of coach. That's what a coach is. <laughs> coach, <laughs> a coach is somebody who helps make sense of their experience. They're an experience coach. Yes, you just gave it a different label because quite often. You know, we when we're too close to it, we don't make sense. It's hard for us to see with objectivity what the lesson was and how it serves us. Once you can understand what the lesson is and how it serves you, wow, it allows you to feel better and not despairing about some of the some of the shit you're going through. Yeah. There's a Harvard psychologist, Robert Keegan, who talks mm-hmm. about the subject-object move, you know, as being one of the key initiators of development and I, I hear that in your question you know then yeah. well what's been my lesson to learned it was just kind of hanging around inside subject you were subject to it and now you're articulating it out you can see it you've grown bigger than it but you also can begin to embody better you're making conscious some of the lessons that are embedded inside of it so yeah I really appreciate that lesson and I, I I want to ask you about purpose and stuff but I'm, I'm aware you said like oh, I'll share like three or four of the the lessons of, um, uh, yeah. you know, growing older. Uh, did we did we share yeah. three or four? Is there uh, any yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, wisdom and emotional uh, intelligence, and but let me give you a couple more. Um, uh, you learn to care less about what other people think about you. Hell um, yeah! You become le- you pr- you personalize less, or to use Mark Manson's language, you you learn to give not to give a fuck. But that not giving a fuck is not about not caring. It's about learning to what it's about being judicious and discerning about what you should care about. It's not saying you don't care about anything. It's just saying, I don't care about everything. And I don't care, especially about what everybody else thinks. So that's another, uh, certainly another one. Um, another thing that actually gets better with age often is time affluence. Feeling like you have the, if you are editing your life, you start to create some space back into your life. And that's huge. You know, um, Kevin Kelly, my friend, uh, one of the co-founders of Wired Magazine said, um, the rich have money and the wealthy have time. And there's something to, something to that. Um, and I'd say another thing that, that gets better with age, when we're younger, we compartmentalize. And we also have, sometimes we're introverted, sometimes we're extroverted. Sometimes with that group of people, we have to be nice. With that group of people, we have to be harsh. I think one of the things that happens as we get older is as we grow old, we grow whole. We become alchemists. So yes, we have curiosity and wisdom. And we know how to be the mixologist of these two polarities. And yin and yang, and extroversion and introversion, and gravitas and levity. And the people I really admire as they get older are the ones who embody those polarities in an alchemical way such that they know exactly what this moment needs. Does it need a little bit of gravitas? Some, you know, some, something weighty that feels like, okay, this is serious? Or does it need levity? Does it need laughter? Um, and I think learning to be an alchemist is one of the qualities we learn as we age. It's a form of wisdom. 
Yeah, beautiful, beautiful distinctions there. Um, can, I, can I ask you about purpose here? Because I hear that in what you're talking about when uh, you talk about service, you know, like, um, you know, it's not, w- wisdom is not just something you're accumulating, but it's something you're sharing with people. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's, 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 it, there's one quality or one of a few qualities that are important in our times is more people connecting to a sense of calling and living and sharing that with the world. And so how do you view purpose as being important in this transition? And if you do, I think you do. Um, like how, how do you help people start to touch into that? Cause I saw some really nice distinctions on in your writings and stuff about this yeah. that we can get into. You know, we have a online course. We have online courses of MEA and one of them is a six week course called living and working on a purpose. And um, so people can find that on the website. Uh, I believe that uh, I'm going to speak from the United, uh, an American perspective here. I believe in America. I don't know if this is true in Europe as much, but in America, we are like possessed by purpose, possessed by the thought that it's it's a noun, not a verb. And what I mean by that is, I, I've heard many people come to MEA and lament the fact that all their friends have a purpose and they don't. It's like they came and they said, "All my friends have a BMW, but I don't." It's like all my friends have. <laughs> you know, fill in the blank. They have, you know, the, the beautiful home in the suburbs, but I don't. Like purpose, when you're living it, can feel like a noun, but w- when you're doing it and being it, it's a verb. So what do I mean by that? I think the most important thing is to look at where, in where, what parts of your life could you or are you purposeful? To be purposeful means that you are so purpose is, is maybe the end result of being purposeful. So your purposeful, purposefulness takes you to a purpose. So, so that, that's a bunch of words. So what's the practical application of this? Practical application, if you're feeling a bit like you're missing your purpose right now, is to ask yourself, um, what gets you excited or agitated? Um, what are you curious about? Uh, what is it that you have always been interested in, but have never given proper time to. And when you start to ask these questions, like someone might say, I'm just agitated about climate change. And and, and they say they have no purpose. I was like, okay, so what are you doing about that? It's like, "Um, nothing. I mean, it's like, like, it's too big. I can't do anything. It's like, it's, it's a global thing. It's like, what, what, what could I do? And, so that's a form of learned helplessness and learned helplessness is, you know, the first stage, one of the first stages toward a person potentially being depressed. So um, helping people to see that either they can focus on the, their little part in something bigger or a big part in something smaller. You know, I mean, it, it, for example, there may be things in their local community they can do that have an impact in the local communities ecology and environment. It may not solve global warming, but it actually may make for a more habitable, happier, greener local community. And that may be, that may be where their time needs to go. Or someone might be agitated about something political. It's like, okay. Or they may, or, or they may be curious about a business idea and they feel like, oh, I'm 52 years old. I'm too old to start a business. But in the United States, the majority of businesses every year are started by people who are 50 and older. The world doesn't know that because we look at the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world and say, oh, 
you know, all the entrepreneurs in the U.S. are, you know, under the age of 30. But in fact, no, the majority of American businesses started every year are, are started by people 50 and older. Partly because some of these people get aged out of the workplace and they still need to make money or they're or they've gotten tired of working in the corporate world and they want to go do their own thing. And it's fine. Um, so I would just say that helping people to see that curiosity is a path to purpose. Um, excitement and agitation is a path to purpose. Longing and yearning of something that you have not actually actualized. Uh, we, have, we had a litigation attorney uh, at MEA a couple of years ago. And oh my God, she hated her job. And she hated what it did to her because it made, you know, it made her skeptical of everybody and made her very argumentative. And so we did a little exercise with her, like, you know, what give, what it, we asked a repeating question, what gift do you have to offer? And where she got to took her back to childhood. And she said, like, I love being in the, in the kitchen with my grandmother cooking pies. Like, really? Okay. And she said, whenever I have friends over for meals, people take pies home with them. Guess what? Today, she has a bakery making pies and cakes, and she's no longer a litigation attorney. And she had enough money in the bank so she could go out and become an entrepreneur. And she'll never make as much money as a baker, a baking entrepreneur, as she will as a litigation attorney. But she is so much happier. And She's also starting to look at how could she move beyond one bakery? How could she potentially go out and create some products that she could sell to, to supermarkets? So, um, but it's hard <clears throat> to focus on. No one likes to focus on longing and yearning, especially from something from childhood, because number one, you don't have time for it. Number two is when you start to tap into it, you feel sad and maybe nostalgic for something that has been lost. And yeah. And so... Part of our job at MEA is to help people in a, a week's time tap into some of these longings and yearnings, these agitations, the excitements, these curiosities that will help them get purposeful so they can actually see their purpose. And let's also say one last thing. Uh, there's a big P and a little P purpose. You could have a little P purpose, which is I'm just the best dog owner. I've got a dog. I, I got my dog and I'm just great. That's fine. Little P purpose. Big P purpose is something you know, bigger than that. Um, so, and you can have mo more than one purpose at once. So there's not like, it's like, okay, I, I am, uh, purpose monogamous. You can have like, you have two or three purposes at once. It's totally fine. Yeah. Yeah. I think that breaks like the tyranny of purpose that a lot of people can feel yeah. when it's just like, I've got to find that thing, you know, yeah. and, and it makes it just, uh, unbearable and, and, um, you know, adds to their sense of, Yeah. It creates purpose performance anxiety, yeah. <laughs> like performance anxiety around purpose, which, and performance anxiety is not a good thing. It actually takes you off your game. So one of the things I'm hearing is that, you know, by through this repeating question, you're inviting people like deeper and deeper below into, you know, they, they might kind of give, you know, initially like, yeah. um, you know, oh, I don't know what my gift is. Uh, and then you ask them again and they can tune in and it's like, it's allowing them the space to drop into that articulation. And what I, what I really appreciate, and it, it leads to a question for you, which is, you know, I, when I looked at my life, I actually saw a thread that ran all the way back to my childhood. You know, the way that I played with, and I've talked about it on the podcast, the way I played with my Star Wars figures had a very particular feel to it. 
the way I made art at art school was the same feeling when I was a DJ in nightclubs. It was the same feeling when I coach clients. It's the same feeling, yeah. you know, holding a container for something beautiful to emerge, something true. And, and so, um, like, I, th- I think that's really um, in, like life-giving because, it, you know, it can feel like, oh, this purpose is something I can only achieve through a, a tremendous amount of work. And if I try really hard and, and then I get it just right and only a few people in lifetimes do that. But, no, it's been kind of tracking us our whole lives. And, you know, if you give it that space, you'll start to, you'll start to, to see the, the trail, the red thread of purpose. I'm just curious for you, Chip, you know, do you, how is that for you? Like, do you see a thread that ran through your life Yeah. Uh, that, 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 you know, it's kind of got the same feel to it, but it might take different forms? Yeah, a couple of thoughts there, Joel. Um, first of all, you know, big, big believer in flow. Mahali Csikszentmihalyi was a mentor of mine and uh, finding those activities that give you a sense of flow, which is, I think what you were describing is um, so life-giving and particularly as we get older. Um, I think for me, I have always enjoyed being a rebel and trying something new that hasn't been done, being a disruptor, not because I wanted people to see me as a disruptor. I've never cared about that. But more because I'm, I get I get bored silly if I'm doing something that's been done and that I'm just trying to like optimize something that someone else did. I'd really appreciate the creativity and the freedom of trying something new. And it does mean that I will have more failures than the average person out there or what I like to call noble experiments um, because of the fact that I... I really enjoy being um, curious, like in a laboratory of life. Uh, so I would say back in the day when I was doing boutique hotels, I was, I was the thing, the thing a purpose or something that was really animating for me then was the idea that boutique hotels can come in all shapes, sizes, and prices. Generally speaking, boutique hotels, my, my competitors, the Ian Schragers and the Bill Kimptons and others in Europe, Often the boutique hotels were like four-star, five-star, expensive as hell, et cetera, back then, back in the 1980s. And I was like, well, let's turn motels into boutique hotels. Let's turn campgrounds into boutique campgrounds, et cetera. And I just appreciate it. Let's do it in the suburbs. Let's not just do it in the urban markets. So my little strange you know, um, uh, legacy to the boutique hotel business was uh, boutique hotels can come in all shapes, sizes, and prices. And I think for my time at Airbnb, my deep sense of purpose was right-sizing my ego and realizing after 24 years of being the CEO of my own company, I was no longer the sage on the stage. I was the guide on the side. I was the CEO whisperer to Brian Chesky, who I'm proud to say is still the the, uh, CEO of that public company now, Airbnb. My job was to help these three founders become the best leaders they could be. so in that way, I was I was really a coach. I mean, I was deeply embedded in spending time with all three of them. And then I had I had over a hundred mentees over seven and a half years, four years full time, three and a half years part time. So part of my role was really to be to embody that idea of being the curious and wise modern elder, and to be a mentor, a mentor and an intern at the same time, because I was clueless about the tech business. I joined at age fifty two. I had never worked in a tech company anymore. I uh, sorry, I never worked in a tech co- company ever before. So, like, I, I I had to be the intern at times, 
So I think that was really what was driving me during that period. And then at MEA, you know, I lost five friends um, between age 42 and 52 to suicide back during the Great Recession of 2010. They're all men. Three of the five were entrepreneurs. Uh, and I felt a deep sense as a social entrepreneur, because I don't pay myself with MEA, and we have a lot of scholarships available. So if anybody in your community wants to come and can't afford it, they can also apply for a scholarship, um, from various levels of scholarship. I deeply wanted to just say, we have a problem here, society, and I want to I want to be part of the solution. And mm-hmm. um, so that's that's so so I think I, I think I will just admit that I think I've gone more from the ego to the soul. I think the that our primary operating system, the first half of our adult adult life, is our ego, and for the second half of our adult life, it's our soul. And I would say during my joie de vivre, I had a lot of ego attached. That shifted when I became. My, I went into my role at MEA, at uh, Airbnb because I was no longer the person getting all the attention. I was the person behind the scenes helping those guys succeed. And then at MEA, it's been very much in the place of like, I'm here to support people to be inspired and empowered in midlife and beyond. And I don't have to earn anything uh, because I did very well at, at Airbnb. And um, yeah, so I think... It's, it is that evolution of ourselves. It, sometimes it does feel like we're in the chrysalis, though. Um, and it's in those times where if you're in the chrysalis, you better have a love and appreciation for what you're doing. Because if it's that dark and gooey and you don't love it, you know, it's time to break out of that chrysalis. You know, it speaks to me of the need for this kind of education and support in the world uh, because of that transition can be can be challenging you know people uh people some people don't make it they choose to yeah yeah leave this world you know and um i know in my own experience i had some really disturbing times you know where where the love of friends and family and 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 sages was was like crucial for me and so um you know it feels like that's what i believe coaches can do in these times you know can play that kind of role as we collectively move through this very destabilizing time this chrysalis we're in a collective yeah. chrysalis. we're in a collective chrysalis that's a great great way to put it joel um i yeah you know doc, uh, dr bob waldinger who is doing a fireside chat with us an online fireside chat with um mea on august 1st uh that's open to the world um he is the he's at harvard and he's the one leading the longitudinal study for 85 years now he has not been leading it the whole time of studying a collection of people um, over the course of a long period of time. And the thing that he said in his book, The Good Life, which came out, came out back in January, is he said the number one variable for a healthy and happy person in their 80s wasn't how much cholesterol did they have in their life at age 50. It wasn't you know, how much purpose did they have. Um, it wasn't um, you know, how, how little did they drink or how, much, how little did they smoke. The number one variable for a happy person in their 80s was how strong, how much, how invested were they in their social relations at age 50 or in their 50s? And that's really interesting. You know, I, I'm a big believer in social wellness. Uh, illness, illness starts with the letter I, wellness starts with the letters we. So we tend to think of wellness in Western society as a personalized endeavor. How much sleep I had, how how my my nutrition, my my you know my working out. 
but so much of wellness is social wellness. It's our connection to other people and the emotional contagion we have with the people who are closest to. And when we're going through, as you were talking about a minute ago, Joel, a difficult time, how do we, how do we use the social, the emotional insurance? We have, we have property liability insurance for a rainy day for our home or car, but where's the emotional insurance for the rainy day for our life? And men have this problem much more seriously than women because women at a younger age learned how to be vulnerable and to build social networks to support themselves. And for men, what's going on often around midlife is two things simultaneously. Um, They are often, from a career perspective, starting to feel irrelevant and maybe like their best years are behind them and sometimes a lack of confidence. Whereas women in their fifties in the in the workplace are actually feeling more confident, even though there's both ageism and gen, and sexism that they're having to work against. But for men, actually, we see the, the tide turning negative, and while they're feeling that, they are also realizing they have no one to talk to. Hmm. So coaches, I mean, both male and female, and everybody in between, non-binary people are all important. But know that um, one of the things that research has shown is that men feel increasingly irrelevant in their 50s, and women feel increasingly invisible. Um, And so there's things you can do to address that. But I know we're running late on time. So I just, I'm coming back. I'm coming back, Joel. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe maybe we'll do a Rising Coaches workshop. That'd be fun to do like a a workshop with with your community, um, just with coaches. I'd love to do that in the future. Yeah, cool, cool. Um, yeah, so we, we're, we're kind of get. I wonder if there's anything you want to say to the audience, you know, as a kind of uh, closing. I don't know if it's a closing statement or something, but yeah, yeah. you know, like, yeah. You know, I mean, I think um, I would just say that the the key thing to know is that we have gotten clearer as a society around what adolescence is about, what retirement's about, what are the the upsides and downsides. And I'm really curious about how we can do the same for midlife. And I, um, I believe that MEA, because of our connection in the academic world and how many we have Harvard and Yale and, you know, Arthur Brooks, whose book from strength to strength is a, a great book about moving from fluid intelligence to crystallized intelligence around midlife. He's a huge fan of MEA. And um, we're lucky that we have, we're able to take the social science that is really out there and ample, but not very popularized and take it into the laboratory of life of the mainstream. Um, And whether it's in our online courses or it's in our workshops, help people to understand that what we're often going through in midlife is normal. It's, It's not, I don't say that to diminish it or to say, just get over it. I say it mostly to say it is a life stage some of the things are things that you're going to actually grow out of. Some of the things you're going to get used to. And to quote my friend Brené Brown, um, midlife is about unraveling. She calls it the great midlife unraveling. And part of the unravel is to unravel and let go of um, some of the ways you've seen life and to be open to some new perspectives. Um, and this is where coaches are so invaluable so valuable to be able to help people to see the new perspective. 
um, which is hard to see on their own. Mm. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Well, Chip, uh, you, yeah, where can we find out more about? Uh, yeah, so so um, you can chipconley.com is you can see me there. Modernelderacademy.com. I, I write a daily blog. It's called Wisdom Well, and you can subscribe to it for free. You'll find it on the MEA website. But actually, the best thing to do is just Google Wisdom Well Chip Conley, and you get a, an email from me a little microdose of wisdom um, each day that is a little dose of what our MEA program is about. Just elements of, you know, navigating transitions, you know, moving to a growth mindset, reframing our relationship with aging. Um, I'll say one last thing on that is that the uh, Bale, uh, Becky Levy from Yale has shown that when people shift their mindset on aging from negative to positive, they gain seven and a half years of additional life which is more additional life than if you actually quit smoking at 50 or start or started exercising at 50. So the mindset shift around aging, which is what MEA is all about is um, it has makes you happier, healthier and living longer. So I write a lot about those kinds of things in my daily blog called wisdom. Well, and those, I, and I also post, we, well, I don't, but someone else posts, posts my wisdom wells on LinkedIn. So my LinkedIn profile is not a bad place to check out things. Thanks so much, Chip. Thanks, Joel. Uh, an honor to be with you. Here we are. We're at the end of the podcast. Just a, a heads up again. If you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And just want to end by wishing you well. And I'll see you again next time. <laughs>